Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Achtung, which is, of course, Churchillian for Achtung, Achtung. Well, um, it's been a week of protest and anger across the Western world, which resulted in the intriguing sight of the statue of former Bristol slave trader Edward Colston being dragged from its plinth and thrown into the docks. But what relevance to the Second World War hath this? I hear you cry, sweet listener. Well, there's also been graffiti daubed on the statue of Winston Churchill in London, accusing of being a racist. Now, um, it's not like this podcast to talk about what's happened Yesterday, we're much more interested in the events of um, uh, 70, 80 years ago, 80, 80 years, whatever. Um, but um, this is relevant, of course, because, uh, you know, uh, we talk about Churchill often in this podcast. Now, James Holland is, of course, here. Um, we, let, let's at least uh, this is an elephant and it's certainly in our room. Yeah. Gingerly yeah. try and uh, try try yeah. and touch on it. I think it underlines, of course, the the relevance of the Second World War. And the fact that the, the tentacles of that extraordinary conflict are still being felt to this day. Yes, because because absolutely. it is a tentacle from 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 what happened all those years ago. You think about all that huge social upheaval, the huge change that was brought onto the world as a result of it. And don't forget what the Western allies particularly were fighting for. You know, they're fighting for freedom, for liberty, for the right to protest, for for the right to have their voice heard, for the right to have equality um, and all those sort of things. I mean, that was sort of what it was all about, wasn't it? I mean, the thing is, is that there is no doubt that, uh, you know, he wrote unequivocally racist things. He talked about martial races and uh, uh, um, people of different races literally having different value to to the English-speaking world. And, of course, he does, he does you know, write a history of the English-speaking peoples and all that sort of stuff. And we know exactly what he means by that, right? But, but it, it, it doesn't mean people have learned English. But the thing about the Second World War... And 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 the, and the, oh, I mean, you know, there we go. There's a we have ways of making you talk. Um, uh, opening opening frame for an argument. The thing about the war is this is when the West has to pick a side. And even Churchill, who's a racist, uh, there's no denying that, and who makes mistakes in the con- conduct of the war. The war is about picking a side between uh, or against the other guy. Because if we're going to get into if we're going to get into if it's a racism Olympics. Churchill owned it doesn't even I don't think it even gets on a podium in the Second World War. If if we're if we're honest here, I don't even know and some people would argue that he does and they're in, getting into that nitty-gritty, getting into that argument is something I don't know that we would want to do because right at the headline of this, yes, absolutely he was a racist, but the ramifications of the West picking a side in the war, yes they weren't immediately acted upon and yes racism wasn't immediately on everyone's agenda, but it became the thing. You can't fight a war like that in the name of these values and then not to act on those values, which is what the civil rights movement is about, which is what Black Lives Matter even now is about, is actually, well, hang on a minute. I thought Western liberal values were important. So why aren't we backing them up, holding them dear, valuing them? And so, so, yeah, of course he was. 
But then also the, the paradox is, is then he, I mean, he sets in motion human rights. Uh, 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 yeah, the charter that's uh, the basis of the EU human rights that we enjoy or don't enjoy today, depending on which way you look at it. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, there was the Atlantic Charter of, of um, Atlantic meeting of um, August 1941. Churchill went and met with um, Roosevelt um, off the uh, off the Canadian coast. And, you know, one of the big things was to uphold freedom for all and liberties for all, you know, devoid of race and all the rest of it. I mean, you know, it was a quite deliberate kind of anti-imperial line from Roosevelt. And it was quite deliberately there to kind of make the British squirm a little bit but Churchill yes. signed up to it and, and well and was then held to it I mean a lot of it this goes down I mean you know I've seen a lot of stuff on, in the paper and on social media about the Bengal famine you know I just I have written about it in my Burma book all I say on it is it is a lot more nuanced than a kind of you know a few characters in a tweet would suggest well you could argue if anything that the, the cause of it all is uh, uh, c- imperial collision in that part of the world and that if you're if you are anti-imperialist, then you argue that imperiums are anyway based on a, a racist foundation, a racist structure. So yes, racism is to blame for what happens there. But we're also talking. We're also again look at the other guys. I mean, it, 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 the, the Japanese Empire and its ambitions are as uh, 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 even more nakedly racist than than say the history of the British Empire in India. So so. Which is which isn't of course. I mean, of course, there's a tightrope here, which isn't of course to excuse um, the the British Empire in India, but it's to it's to it's to say, well, look at what's look at what's to contextualise, though, isn't it? Well, yeah, but people don't like even you saying it's to contextualise it because that sounds weaselly. It's to say what's going on at the time after the reason we're having this debate and the you know, I mean, I actually personally think. He probably wouldn't have minded too much his statue being defaced. He wouldn't have liked it, but he'd have thought, well, that's the that's the right we have, a freedom we have. That's where our freedoms have evolved to. Whereas Colston, of course, that statue is a Victorian statue which seeks to whitewash slavery um, from from the city's record that tries to present Bristol as a, and this is Victorians doing this, present it as the great merchant trading city. And the slave trade is like completely, and he was a, you know, and of course he's a wealthy philanthropist, partly because there's no state at the time. So someone's got to do the philanthropy. He's part of an attempt to rewrite history, which is what people who say Churchill was a racist aren't trying to do. They aren't trying to rewrite history. They're acknowledging the reality of it. Whereas that statue was an attempt to rewrite history. So I'm, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I think that Colston going in the, in the, in the, in the river, uh, in the Avon, that's history actually happening right there in itself. It's not an attempt to rewrite it. It's an attempt to, to make it and to get to grips with it. So I've, I, I find it quite hard to be bothered about about Colston, to be honest, and that statue. Ah, well, you know, um, and that, and of course, the police sometimes sometimes they know the right thing to do isn't get in the way of people who really want to do a thing like that because then it'll get it'll get far worse. Um, and also, the bottom line is you can clear it up, and and it, you know, Winston will be back to normal, and it'll it'll all be yeah. fine. But but I um. I'm just a little bit depressed by how divided the Western world is. You know, you sort of look at the Second World War. One of the reasons they won, um, so uh, you know, the the coalition was so successful was yeah, the yeah. singleness of purpose, one united goal. You know, cooperation, coordination. You know, that just it just feels like right now with people aren't really kind of pulling together. Yeah, well, yes, and that that division is used as a wedge to play the margins in politics because, uh, uh, you know, if you can win an election with 42% of a vote... I mean, I'm loath to get politi- political on this, but it, but, it, but I often feel 
that when you get into these questions of racism, it completely sits outside politics anyway. It's a moral question. It's not a question of taste about trade tariffs, you know, which is, after all, the thing that's been driving us insane the last five years in this country. <laughs> well, and also, I mean, I would say that, you know, one, one of the things where I feel, you know, if you're sort of analysing, you know, why, why are we so interested in the Second World War? There is this morality to it. That is the bedrock of our interest in the Second World War. This, this, or it is for me. It is a well, sense, yeah. that sense that at the end of it, you, 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 you are for all the kind of awful things that happened. You know, this is about stopping evil. This, this is about standing up for liberties. And I've never felt that more keenly than I did in 2014 when I was over in the D-Day anniversary, and everyone was sort of going, you know, why is everyone still making such a fuss about this? And I just remember it was this beautiful sunny day, and everyone was partying, and it was so international. You know, it, yeah. there, there, were, there were there were so many different people there from all over Europe, all over the world. Um, people in, you know, um, sort of having a big party. Of course, it was a kind of largely kind of Western world European thing, but but it was it was still a great coming together of different peoples. And I thought, wow, you know, this is what they all fought it for. You know, we all want, we all want a world where there's equality and and no racism and you know policemen aren't kind of sitting on people's necks. I mean, that's just horrible. And I, and I recommend if people get a chance, go and have a look at what Arnold Schwarzenegger has to say about this on online, where he he points out that he grew up in post. Uh, defeated Nazi Austria and uh, 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 it's it's actually worth a look I mean I never thought we'd bring the Terminator into We Have Ways of Making You Talk (laughs) but he's done it he's done it somehow Um, we've had lots of fantastic emails tweets independent company posts all coming our way in the past few weeks this came by email from listener Andy Reid just listened to the Blitzkrieg 1940 episode and heard you mention the Atlantic convoys this brought to mind a question I've had for some time resulting from some family tree inquiries Two of my mum's cousins, David Jones, 36, and his brother, Frank Jones, 30, were aboard the steamer SS Ramillies en route from the Tyne to Baltimore via Liverpool with a crew of 37 and four gunners. Joining convoy OB317, they were escorted along with 22 other merchant vessels into the mid-Atlantic until they were left to proceed to their own destinations as the escort returned for the next convoy. Unfortunately, 1,100 miles southeast of Cape Farewell in Greenland, or roughly midway between Ireland and Newfoundland, Ramillies was torpedoed and sunk by U-97 under command of Captain Lieutenant Udo Heilman. Only 11 seamen and one gunner survived, picked up by another merchant vessel. Now my 90-year-old mother adds a further chapter to the story. Apparently, after being torpedoed, two lifeboats were launched and David and Frank were in separate boats. David asked one of the crew in his brother's boat if he could swap with him to be with his brother as Frank couldn't swim. This was agreed, and I imagine you can guess which lifeboat was then never seen again. The story related to Frank and David's family by one of the survivors. Just shows how little decisions can change your life. My question is, why were they left to their own devices for so much of their journey? Were they not aware that U-boats patrolled so far out? Was it a case of potluck and the unlikelihood of being spotted by a U-boat in mid-Atlantic? Yes, so when was this again? It's 1941. OB-317 is 1941. So um, Heileman, yes, gets the Ramillies, which is 4,553 4, tons. And then U-38 under Heinrich Lieber takes up the Vulcan. Well, uh, SS Ramillies is a, is, a, is a big, that's a big vessel, isn't it? So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's a steamship. So they, they operated, tended to operate on their own outside of convoy because they were quick. Yeah. Um, so they could operate faster than a U-boat could. So for the most part, that I mean, that's why they were... They were generally safe on their own. Very, very yes. bad luck. I mean, that is that potluck thing. I'm, uh, we've both. I'm reading, and you've just read, and our producer Tony has just read the Good Shepherd, which is C.S. Forrester's book. A captain of a convoy um, uh, escort destroyer. In fact, he's the commander of the of the escort 
and is running his own ship as well, which is by C.S. Forrester, who wrote the Hornblower books. Um, if you're a Hornblower fan, I was when I was a kid. And this book is absolutely amazing for the getting into the guy's head. He's permanently in a state of trigonometry, this guy. And um, we uh, at school, we had a maths teacher who used to try and teach us trigonometry in terms of snooker. He'd go, uh, this is big Welsh rugby player used to teach us maths and he'd say you're trying to put the plaque and it goes in that corner and he'd talk about the angles and it used to wash over me but this book makes it quite clear that what you're looking at all the time is you're doing this sort of uh, three well and actually with the U-boat with depth it's sort of four dimensional because whichever direction you go in it then changes your relative position to the other guy but whichever direction he's moving in and at what speed and where the other vessels are and what the range of the weapons are and what the depth is and if the U-boats let off a pillenwerfer which is a device they had for um, which they'd release which would they'd release a thing that actually let off a great big bubble of, of um, air which would reflect on the sonar as a decoy um, sonar trace and that so this book's inside this captain's head in a pitching rolling sea how fast his vessel can go and if the convoy changes direction that's the bit the right at the start of the book the convoy has to change direction and he makes the point that so you've got what 30 ships that are all different that are all got different um uh, handling different maximum speed different fuel consumption different uh uh you know uh different loads and all that and so the minute the convoy changes direction it's total chaos with everyone going at different speeds some people overshoot they try turning around and also these convoys are stretched over miles yeah 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 yeah, yeah. it's quite it's quite it's quite amazing and um uh i really recommend it as a read because because you're right and i think it it's the is it the basis for the Tom Hanks? Up- yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, it's, the, it's called Greyhound because because uh, because yeah. um, the um, Krauser's Krauser's ship is called the Keeling. In Keeling, yeah. which is not not very sexy for a movie title, no. but Greyhound no. sounds quite good, doesn't it? Well, I hope that what's really great though is is that because you're in the captain's head. There's, there's an English ship. Well, no, there's a Polish ship with an English radio operator. And when he talks to the Polish ship, he has to think carefully about how he talks to them. And there's one bit where there's some torpedoes miss the Victor. And he says, uh, and he says, uh, those torpedoes seem to have missed you. Yes, thank you. Yes, sir. The torpedoes have missed. And then he thinks to himself, I've got to show some, got to show some consideration to these people. So he says, well, thank God they missed. We were worried about you. And the bloke replies, thanks very much. We can look after ourselves. <laughs> it's just like, and it's just like, pow. And there, and there, there's a Canadian ship as well. So he can talk differently to them because they'll understand a bit more of the vernacular and all that sort of stuff. And the, th- the fact that every single word he utters, this captain, he has to weigh and consider is is brilliant in the book and 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 just staying awake and the part of the story is that he's 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 been he's been uh, repurposed as an escort captain he's a bit old and he's a bit past it and if he'd if he him and his wife hadn't broken up he'd have been in pearl harbor and all that it's really good it's really really good oh it's so good isn't it yeah. and he's and he's just and, and his wife has left him or it's it's so brilliant so anyway so i've now got the ship which i'm really looking forward to but forrester must have spoken to um uh, those captains to, to just, research it just the book. feels so right doesn't it as a historical yeah. novel yeah, it feels yeah, yeah, absolutely yeah. spot on okay we need to take a short break um i've got to check our asdic and look for pings Uh, welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. There was nothing on the ASDIC, don't worry. Um, uh, proceed on a heading 
Um, uh, 103 degrees at 20 knots, please, Mr. Holland. Well, that's 20 knots, that's going somewhere. No, you say 103 degrees at 20 knots, sir. Aye, aye, sir. That's what you have to repeat the heading. You repeat the heading. (laughs) 103 degrees at 20 knots, sir. Very well. Thanks for all of your positive feedback. To our Dunkirk specials in particular, um, I mean, I um, I absolutely love doing that. Though by the by the end of the eight days, I was so bogged because we did it. We had to record them all in slightly different order till they came out and and pace it all through and and do a day by day. And I was kind of boggled by the end of it, um, which which I think does the does the event justice. If you're not boggled by Dunkirk, there's something wrong with you. And our next crazy content idea is to do is our plan to do a Band of Brothers watch along. Um, you'll need a copy of Band of Brothers on DVD or on Amazon or Now TV. I mean, you probably some of you've got it on VHS, haven't you? You fools! I'm <laughs> calling it Gurglebox. Gurglebox, very well. Then you what? Then you um, then uh, what you do is you watch Band of Brothers on the telly um, and have James and I on a split screen on your laptop or your iPad or phone, um, yakking along to it, or you know, like just being gripped by the incredible drama and the very high production standards. Now, of course, um, uh, we've been. I mean, weirdly for this podcast we'll be talking about this week um uh, churchill wasn't the only second world F- war figure in the press this week it's been a, it's been an interesting splurge of um, world war ii revelation publishing with the defiant theory um uh the other week that the defiant was the best fighter the allies ever built and then of course what do you make of the news that rudolf hess was apparently trying to overthrow churchill with the help of the poles oh, i don't think a lot of that to be honest well 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 let's just start let's just start with the polish government in exile, right? There's absolutely no way they're going to want to do a deal with the Nazis. Secondly, second, well, that's, so that's them. Secondly, the Nazis. There's absolutely no way they're going to do a deal, deal with the Polish government. They don't recognise it exists. Part of the entire business of invading Poland is to get their hands on Poland and destroy Poland and turn Poland into um, a German colony. A satellite, a German colony. In fact, to to re-Germanise the bits of... Because there are chunks of Poland anyway that were German. So what you you do is you you come up with some madcap idea and then then you work backwards and try and find some some, some rather feeble evidence to fit your idea. That's that's what you do if you're a conspiracy theorist. And and it's just just wibble. It is wibble, isn't it? And and I mean, mean, unless, of course, what they're trying to demonstrate... Yeah, even further is how clueless Rudolf Hess was, right? Because Which I think is, I think, I think he's, there is some merit in that particular bit of it. Because he was totally clueless. Um, his plan when he arrived in the UK was the was the act of someone like without any understanding whatsoever of who he was dealing with. He had no idea of who the what the British who was in the British. He was losing country. influence. He was one of the originals. Yeah. He was one of the diehards. Um, he was yeah. supposed to be Hitler's deputy. He knew he was absolutely losing complete influence to, to Martin Bormann and to everybody else. He, he wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed. Also, a total crank. He was one of those guys who yeah. believed in kind of world ice theory and all that shit. Yeah. And and um, and he suddenly thought, what can I do? And he was losing his mind. He was he was he was having a mental breakdown at the time. I'm pretty yeah. certain. Yeah. Um, and he thought, oh, here's fun. This is what I'll do. This is how I'll get back into favour. I will say, you know, the big big problem that we have at the moment is we need the West out of it. So I'll fly over to England and I'm sure they'll see reason when I see them face to face. That's all we need. We just need that yeah. kind of, you know, mano a mano approach. Uh, yeah. We'll sort it out. Then I'll get Britain off off off, off hit the Fuhrer's back. That means he's got a free reign in, in Soviet Union without having to worry about the West. I, I don't think it's any more complicated than that. And I don't think people, you know, sometimes the most obvious thing is, is, is usually the reason. Yeah, it's, Occam, it's Occam's razor on this one. And. Uh, but it also indicates 
but you know that they were all completely clueless about about the British establishment, about who was actually. But no, but it's not even geopolitical understanding. It's not not reading the papers. It's not knowing who's in charge in London. I mean, no, it's just it's total it's total, total it's total stupidity. I mean, you yeah. know, it's just it's just it's absolutely harebrained in the highest order. Well, that's that dispatched. Right. Okay. Um. Uh. We have an independent company member. Um. If you're an independent company member, that that's because you've subscribed to our Patreon, where um you get to um in. Joy daily debate. Uh, we get our do audio books, which reminds me of a whole load of stuff to record, and of course the live cast every Thursday night at eight thirty p.m. where James and I get shit faced um, live on the internet for your delectation and um, answer your questions. Anyway, staying on staying on sub warfare. Um, Ronnie Cowper asks, "What did the British submarines and crews get up to during the war?" Am I right in thinking the British submarine force was larger than the German U-boat fleet? And yet, I've heard next to nothing about their exploits. Great show, boys, and get the colonel back on. Cheers. Um, well, it was it was it was larger at the start of the war, but obviously not at the height of the of the U-boat war. But um, uh, British submarines were particularly strong in the Mediterranean. That's where they they were they were most heavily used but they were used all over the place yeah um um uh the temp flotilla was 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 the legendary temp flotilla which was based at malta during the siege of malta uh um the highest scoring allied submarine ace of the war was um of, of you know american or british or canadian or whatever um was david wanklin who we've we've talked about yeah, before wanks. known as yeah. wanks and um I was lucky enough to to know Tubby Crawford very well, um, who was his number two or his number one rather, I should say, is what they're officially called. His second in command yeah. on on HMS Upholder for much of the time, before being sent back to do his perisher, which was the commander's course back back in Britain. He then yeah. and then Tubby then came back out again and um, in charge of HMS Unseen, um, and was involved in the Mediterranean in North Africa and was um, on operation during Operation Husky. Uh, which yeah. was the invasion of Sicily. He was great actually because they were. I, I think I mentioned before. You know when the when the um, upholder attacked the Conti Rosso, which was eighteen thousand ton troop ship, and they went underneath the uh, the, the destroyer screen to, to destroy it because their Aztec was out. So they did it kind of purely visually, uh, and then got depth charged something like thirty eight times, thirty six times. And I remember saying to Tubby. Um, Gosh, you know that that must have been absolutely terrifying. And and he was one of those sort of brilliant, understated people, and he just went. Well, I suppose it was a bit hairy, and um, uh, and uh, the thing I always tried to keep hold of was the fact that any depth charge, you know, you you've got to sort of hit on three planes because you know you can move down and forward and back and up and round and forwards and backwards, um, which actually makes you jolly difficult to hit. Well, but. You know, we've been talking about controversy and how history gets written um, in the first half of this podcast. I think the reason we don't know about the British submarines and crews is because we won. We talk about German submarine warfare because um, it gets in the way of us winning, winning the war. It interrupts our attempt to win. It disrupts our supplies and it sends doughty merchant seamen to the bottom of the sea. Our submarine effort does exactly the same thing to the Germans. And results in what we talked about the other day when we talked about D-Day, naval supremacy, not superiority. The, the, the Italian Navy, Italian shipping, German Navy, such as there is one, and German shipping, such as there was any, is all at the bottom of the sea, thanks to these crews. Everyone knows there's a residual feeling in there somewhere in them that submarine warfare is ungallant. We have to admit that, because after all, the, the, that's the resistance to submarine warfare in the First World War. Um, uh, well, before the First World War, and then during the First World War, is it seen as cheating or ungallant or not a fair encounter? Isn't it? Be funny. I've never thought of it like that. I, I, I don't think I do think like that. You don't, but I think I think this is this is how this has ended up 
this is how this has ended up such a muted history because they're out there doing exactly the same stuff as the U-boat crews. In fact, more successfully. The Italians and the Germans have a very limited number of vessels because they're in the Mediterranean and because they don't have this huge overseas empire and because they don't have large navies to start off with. What they've got, and they don't have the capacity to start building vast ships during the Second World War. They just don't, they don't have the the money, the time, the infrastructure, the the resources, any of those things. They just don't have, have that. So they start off with some quite big ships and by the end of 1941, those big ships have gone. They're already yeah. sunk, like the Conte yeah, yeah, yeah. the 18,000-ton car. There's then another two, there's a sort of 17,000 ton and another 18,000 ton that, that, that Upholder destroys in September 1941. Then there's Force K, which is this kind of put together. It is um, a light, it's a, it's, a, it's a cruiser Penelope, and I can't remember what the other one, and a, and a handful of destroyers. And... They just wreak havoc. They destroy 77% of all Axis shipping going across the Mediterranean in November yeah. 1941. That very same month, you know, by December, Rommel has been beaten and is on the run in North Africa. Yeah. There's, a, there's a massive correlation between Axis supplies getting through to, to North Africa and everything going well for them. And Axis supplies not getting through to North Africa and, and it all going pear shaped. But again, it's the it's the train running on time. You know, no one no one even notices it. Uh, but I also think that submarines do do still, nevertheless, have this element of ungallantry. There's something yeah, maybe something sneaky about it. But but what happens too is that, that suddenly there's no big ships left, and by 1943 yeah. there's really no ships left. And by yeah. By even trying to supply Sicily in the summer of 1943, they've got real problems because they just haven't got enough yeah, ships. The ships are getting smaller and smaller, yeah. which yeah. means more loading and unloading and less efficiency uh, and so on and so forth. Yeah. And there are those six tankers that are sent across to Rommel in the last week of August 1942. So what's happened yeah. is, is, is Malta is completely is completely um, starving and is about to kind of surrender. Then Operation Pedestal is mounted, which is the most heavily defended convoy of the entire war. Five of the 14 ships get through, including the uh, including the, the, the tanker Ohio by the 15th of August. Within a matter of days, Malta's up and running again. Uh, and, and by the last week of August, all six tankers going to Rommel are sunk. So it's... it's and, and it's not just submarines and it's not just Force K. It's also amazing bow fighters. And, and in, during the Tunisia campaign when they're, you know, when they're, the Germans are completely reinforcing the t- Tunisian bridgehead, the submarines are just having an amazing time. There's a there's a book, book called by Ben Bryant who was a, a, a famous um, Mediterranean British submarine captain who, who I think he's called All Our Submarines, I think is, is what it's called. Oh, right. Well, I might end up reading that. <laughs> Philip Hughes, who's also an independent company member. Um, thanks for joining us, Phil. Um, he says, evening, gents. That could be. I don't know when you're listening to this. Evening, gents. Absolutely loving the great work you're doing with the podcast. I've, uh, that is like absolute gold-plated. Uh, get my email read out. I've binged every episode in the last few weeks. I've been reading John Nichols' new book, Lancaster, and the raid on the Peenemunde fact facility. It mentions Britain knew about the Nazi rocket programme. Just how much about the V-weapons did we know about before they terrorised Britain? Many thanks to Vance. Keep up the great board. Well, there was a lot of argument about the V-weapons. And you had um, uh, Lindemann, Lord Charwell, was was one of the people saying these things are serious and we need to take it very, very seriously. But there was there was a great uh, and, you know, and that's the right person to know. 
um, because he has Churchill's ear. But they just didn't actually quite know what they were. And they got they got very worried about that. The, 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 the V2, they thought, had a 10 ton warhead. Um, uh, and there was the considerable argument about actually how lethal these rockets were going to be. And uh, uh, and so the Pinamunda raid is very much uh, is, is, an, is unusual for an allied um, uh Raid because it, it's an acknowledgement that they know something that the Nazis think is completely secret, isn't it? And obviously they they know about it from Ultra and they know about it from you know uh, uh, p- people talking about it as well, actually. And then they and then they send photo reconnaissance over. But it it's one of those raids which says, look, we know about this now. But they also uh, knew that Peter Munda was a was a research centre as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. But 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 exactly what? It, but then it shows they know exactly how serious a research centre it is, and it's an interesting raid as well, isn't it? Because it's one of those ones where Harris sort of scrapes everything together um, uh, that he's got available to him. They don't actually. Uh, they, I mean, it's one of these another another one of these raids where they they kill a load of Polish slave labourers as well. And you think, oh God, they do they do disrupt production to the point where it has to go underground and it's dispersed and all that sort of stuff which is really really important but they they, they sort of they knew there was something coming but they didn't know exactly what it was and that there when the first v1s start falling the government's very very secretive about it, it says it's gas explosions and all this sort of stuff and and, and put off um saying actually it's a new weapon the v2 the v1 there's nothing you can do about that because because it's it comes in fuck 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 and everyone can see it it makes a it makes a distinctive noise whereas the v2 goes off like that because it's hypersonic comes out of the it comes down out of the atmosphere vertically doesn't it and that and that and that's that but they but the there is there's weirdly there's relief in whitehall when the first few v2s fall because they're one ton warheads not 10 ton warheads which is the thing they were worried about really worried about so there's they knew they knew a fair bit well they had a whole operation to 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 try and destroy them beforehand i mean because i think the first v2 v1 the first v1 landed 13th of june 14th of june just after d-day like a week or so after d-day um but but in the run-up to D-Day, one of the diversions of air power was to try and destroy uh, what were called noble targets, which yeah. were these V-1 launch sites yeah, that yeah, were yeah. dotted up. Um, uh, and the whole operation to destroy them was called Operation Crossbow. Of course, incredibly difficult to hit because it's just a narrow ramp with an underground bunker, which is very well camouflaged. So incredibly hard. A huge amount of effort was expended to try and knock them out. Yeah. And actually, yeah. very unsuccessful because it's kind of next to impossible. Um uh, and there was sort of real frustration about this because, of course, you know when you're hitting a uh, if you're hitting a, a noble target, a V1 to- uh, site, you can't be hitting a bridge or yeah. In fact, it's a it's a it's a bigger effort than uh, point blank, isn't it? I mean, in effect, uh, the, the, no, not, no, no, no. Point the, blank not is the, the point one. blank, not the point blank. No, than the, tr- the interfering with the transport thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's certainly a big, big effort, and you know one of the reasons why everyone gets so twitchy and nervous about the. Um, about the attrition period in Normandy where the map doesn't seem to be moving is because they want to get to these V1 sites and knock them out. You know, as soon as bombs start falling on your own cities, you have this incredible kind of moral imperative to kind of do something about it ASAP. And it's that, it's it's that, it's, it's June, July, 1944, when Britain sustains its most casualties full stop. Um, and their their battlefront casualties in Normandy and Italy, obviously, and in and in the Far East, but their home front casualties because the the V weapons blitz gets underway and is killing a lot of people, 
And so you, 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 that, that's the, um, that's Daniel Todman says, that's the moment, the most, the moment of most total war during the second world war for the, for, for the British, um, uh, 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 which is, which is June, July, August, 1944. I mean, and after all, a big part of the market garden decision is there's the V2 launch sites in, in Holland and it would, it would be great to take those out. Absolutely. Know. And, and, and not enough of that political pressure is, is, factored in when people analyze market garden either um that's a great question though um i'm yet to read i'm yet to read uh, john's book because it's on the pile ahead of john's and i keep i keep forgetting to talk about this is this book which i was sent by um charles barn sent me a copy of this which is called churchill's colonel the war diaries of lieutenant colonel anthony barn who who i mean everyone's churchill's colonel but this this guy if you see what i mean would be, but this book this book this bloke's diary is it's literally it's it's day to day. So uh, what what's the well? Should we see what he says about D Day? He's in Italy. Okay, at eight a.m. the really thrilling news comes from a German source that the invasion has started. Ten a.m. Eisenhower confirms this personally, and by eleven a.m. it's in the headlines of the news. Pray God it goes well and it puts an end to this war this autumn. So he thinks that Overlord is going to end the war in the autumn. Um, uh, and then he's we move on slowly. And at two thirty p.m. we find Rome coming into sight. Curiously enough, we follow the road that I'd noticed five years ago when flying in. I also see the high tension wire that almost finished us off. We don't enter the city, but bypass it. There seems to have been a lot of fighting in the outskirts. There are a number of dead about and many animals in that strange, ungainly posture. Legs straight, stiff and wide apart. It's not very pleasant. An unfortunate detour leads us right under the barrels of a battery of 155s as they begin to loose off. The blast is truly, truly terrific. At one stage in the afternoon, we halt in convoy and I find myself alongside a Hun with most of his head missing. Someone puts a map over the gap. We bivy in a nice field outside the city. In 21 hours on the road, we have moved 28 miles. Even with the heavies firing directly over us, it won't stop me from sleeping. It's really, really good. It, it, it's, it, it's really, really good. I, I was sent a copy and I keep forgetting to talk about it. Um, uh, and I, I hope we can redress. I think maybe we, we could do, maybe on Thursday I'll pick, a, um, for the live cast, I'll pick a juicy entry and we'll read that because um, it's very entertaining. I mean, uh, it does contain some of the um, racial language of the time, as if to underline our original point, I have to say. Uh, it is really, it's, it's really, really good. Wednesday, 21st June 44, B Squadron on a scheme all day and we go out to supervise. There's a huge amount of rain. We call it Hitler's weather, as every time the Hun pull out for a long run, our forward troops get held up by bad weather and the air strafing is handicapped. Anyway, Bad weather go. in the war. Bad weather. Well, bad weather ruins the air cover, you know, which is, the which is of course, um, you know, if you've got air cover, it screws everything up. If you haven't got any and you're the Germans, oh, well. Oh, no, I just, I, I just never get over just how awful the winters were throughout the entire yeah. Second World War. Maybe we would have finished it by Christmas 44 if it hadn't been for that. Yeah, there's, a, there's your counterfactual. I think that'll, I think that, that is that, I think we've, we've covered plenty of ground for this week. I will, I'll remember to read this out on, on the Thursday because this, diaries, I think, are always a, they're always a nice little snapshot, aren't they? That's it for this week. We all need to lie down. Thursday, we are live streaming as usual. Hope to see you there. The usual rolling uh, thunder of a We Have Ways livecast. Cheerio! Cheerio!